You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger, and we are part of The Dispatch Media, uh, thedispatch.com. I've been very lax in reminding all of our many, many thousands and thousands of listeners, Sarah, about our affiliation and that there's more than the Advisory Opinions Podcast to The Dispatch. Uh, So please go to thedispatch.com, check us out. Here's your periodic reminder to also please review us on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting some great feedback and really appreciate it. Now, we had to call a little bit of an audible this morning because... Because once again, I was wrong. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) I think we were both uh, anticipating that the Supreme Court would issue an interesting opinion or two this morning. Um, It did not. At 10.02, Dave and I are like, uh... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> we're not talking about equitable disgorgement on the podcast today, though it is definitely going to be the name of my garage band. <laughs> I, I would listen to that band. I will not read that opinion. <laughs> um, so we're going, but it's not like we lack for topics. Uh, so no. we're going to avail ourselves of Sarah's political organizing expertise to talk about the meaning and potential fallout or lack thereof of Trump's um, sparsely attended Tulsa rally. We're going to talk about the Friday night massacre. Nope, nope, not Friday night massacre. Saturday morning massacre. Nope, nope. Saturday night, finally, massacre of in the firing of the U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York and what that means. And then we are going to do something we haven't done, which I think is it's kind of a fun idea. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to talk about two pieces of commentary about last week um, and how people are processing a a really momentous week at the Supreme Court last week and what it means. We're going to sort of, we're going to, we're going to save our assessment of the conservative legal movement more broadly until the term is over because we've got a lot of major cases yet to be decided, but we're going to uh, analyze some thoughtful commentary about what has happened. And we're going to wind up with a discussion of Man, we're going way back. Well, not really way back. I re-watched the Hunger Games series over the weekend, and I have thoughts. So we're going to have some uh, bonus cultural commentary about Katniss Everdeen. Uh, and with that, Sarah, you have organize, helped uh, uh, organize rallies. You have been a part of a, a presidential campaign that uh, held public events. Uh, on daily, multi, I guess sometimes multiple times a day. It better be multiple what, times a day. You try to pack those events in, man. So tell us what to think about what went down in Tulsa on Saturday night. So, okay, let's back up to how presidential campaigns are organized. You have, uh, you have your press team. I think that's what people think, like all presidential campaigns are basically just one large press team. <laughs> uh, actually a pretty small part of the team. You have your legal department, uh, which is what I did for Romney's uh, 08 and 12 campaigns. Uh, Pollsters and stuff like that are actually usually outside the campaign. They run their own businesses. So they're kind of outside consultants, considered senior strategists. They like pop in and out and annoy everyone. Uh, 
Same with the media buyers, things like that, the ad guys. Uh, The largest by far component of a presidential campaign is the political team. The finance team is usually pretty large, but um, even so, usually eclipsed by the political team. Digital teams are becoming much larger. These are the guys who do micro-targeting, vote scoring, things like that, that I'm sure we will talk about before November. But let's leave that topic and really concentrate on the old school gumshoe political team that used to be like 99% of campaigns. And certainly as you get lower down the ballot, they become bigger as a percentage of the campaign, even more so. Okay, the political team is made up of lots of different groups, but the group we're going to talk about today is the advanced team. (laughs) Oh, they're Uh, not having a good week this week, are they? They're having a bad week. Advance is really hard for a few reasons. One, you know, you've got to pick your venue. And for instance, everyone's like, well, why didn't they have an outside venue? Well, same reason you don't always plan for an outside wedding, weather. (laughs) And with a wedding, we're only talking about maybe 120 people that you've got to find tents for. What are you going to do with, you know, tens of thousands of people at an outdoor venue? So that's one reason why you try to hold them indoors. There's a lot more uh, control over the visuals, things like that. But all of that pales in comparison to crowd building. Crowd building... Mm -hmm is the nightmare scenario. (laughs) People don't show up to rallies because you tell them about the rally. People show up to rallies because you get them to the rally. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, huge undertaking. Uh, And what we saw this weekend was, well, first of all, remember it got moved from June 19th. Juneteenth, by the way, shout out to a great Texas holiday celebration. Uh, That is the date, of course, that Texas... uh, uh, believe through Galveston, found out about the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, it has been always one of my favorite, favorite Texas holidays because it is really joyful and there's some fun stuff that goes on. So I'm so glad that I feel like the country um, has really been uh, educated and learning about Juneteenth this year. So I think that's a really good thing. Yeah. So then the rally gets moved to the 20th. They are setting expectations sky high of how many signups they have. The venue holds 20,000 people. End of the day, they got about 6,200. So what does that mean? It can mean several things. One bucket, you know, I love my buckets. One (laughs) bucket, uh, the advanced team didn't do their job in crowd building. Right. And if this were, you know, 2012, I think that would just be the obvious thing to point to. Uh, It is actually rarely about enthusiasm for the candidate so much as do you have an advanced team that can like churn out humans Um, and pick the right venue for the size of the humans that are reasonable to think you're going to turn out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes, some people are going to travel, but Tulsa's not on the way to a lot, you know? Yeah, it's and it's not a huge city in its own right. Oh, no, no. So uh, so you've got the advanced team. I don't think that's what happened here, obviously, which, I mean, anyone listening knows that that's probably not the most likely scenario. But second scenario is enthusiasm around the candidate which I think a lot on the left were like, it's only 6,200 people. This shows that the polling is right, that Biden's really up, and that there's no enthusiasm among the Trump base for Trump anymore. We should get into that, but I think that is almost just as flawed as the first one. Right. And again, if this were 2012, maybe so. But it's not. Uh, And so then the third bucket is, you know, force majeure, if you will. (laughs) And (laughs) not just the act of God of the virus and the riots and just general, I think, uneasiness around the country of people uh, being in large crowds away from home, traveling to a rally, all of those things. 
Where are they going to stay? A hotel? Are there restaurants open? All of this. But also perhaps the force majeure of the candidate where the staff is unwilling to tell him, Mm. sir, I'm not sure this is going to work exactly how we've normally done it. Let's try something else. And so that's the 2020 scenario here, which is very different, I think. So you had, um, and you said this to me, and I thought it was really helpful, uh, Drew Griffin, who was um, in 2004 Bush-Cheney campaign and did a lot of advance for that campaign, both for Bush and Cheney, it looks like, you know, tweeted out how life worked in 2004. And I think he's spot on, by the way, and we'll include a link to his Twitter thread for anyone who wants to read it. Um, But it's spot on about 2004 to 2012. Right. (laughs) And 2016 for those of us who lost. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think you just have to add in that uh, I don't think this was about enthusiasm. I mean, David, did you take this as like a drop in base enthusiasm for Trump? I mean, I, to the extent there's a drop in base enthusiasm for Trump, I don't think it is as dramatic as uh, going from 20,000 people to 6,000 people. In other words, yeah, yeah. you know, it, I, I, I have seen and we have perceived slippage in Trump's support, but not material, not huge. Um, I, I took it as a lot of really bad planning and that also people are more concerned about the pandemic than... Perhaps you would learn from reading shock, shock, MAGA Twitter. Right. Or the polls, really, like what you're willing to tell a pollster who asks you in their effete left coast accent, (laughs) you know, are you afraid of going out in public? Will you wear a mask at all times? And you're like, no, whatever. And then it's like, yeah, but do you want to get in a car and be in a crowded venue where six people just tested positive? Right. Maybe I'll pass. Yeah, exactly. Let's say you really, really, really like Donald Trump and you're 60 or 65 or 70 years old. And you're maybe your wife doesn't is, you know, has a pre-existing condition or maybe you do. And it's no, you know, you would you would crawl over broken glass to get there. But broken glass doesn't cause contagious wounds. <laughs> and so <laughs> you're not going to risk it. And 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 so, look, I mean. If we had zero pandemic, we had zero pandemic and he had 6,000 people there, it would really be eyebrow raising. It would really. Agreed. But this is, we have a pandemic. I think the thing that really stood out, stood out to me is the way they hyped these numbers of signups. Well, that's something else to talk about, which is um, the effect. So like we, we talked about cause a little bit. Yeah. But um two effects here. One, they hyped the numbers and I don't, you know, I have no idea whether to believe the numbers, but if the numbers are true, they got a ton of data from that. If they really got a million people to sign up, even if it was all, you know, lots of Antifa or TikTok users, et cetera, <laughs> they have their data. Yeah. Uh, and that's incredibly valuable for what I mentioned before on voter scoring and turnout models down the road come early voting and election day voting. So, you know, in some sense, maybe it was a win regardless for them. Uh, And then second, and this is something Drew points out in his tweet thread, there are sort of psychological consequences to sending your candidate to a crap event. Yeah. And, And I think those are real, but they're not huge. 
Right. And, you know, and maybe maybe that's one where area where the 2012, 2008 analysis or 04 flips around. They might be bigger with this guy. The, the psychological yeah. effect might be bigger with Trump because he puts such a store in these things. He so obviously that's an interesting point. Put such a store. And we in saw it with some of his tweets today, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, this is something that I think he he wanted to make a huge statement in Tulsa. It was to me, it was much more. OK, now the campaign starts now the the pandemic for all practical purposes in a way that should regulate our behavior should be deemed over. I'm the candidate of ending the pandemic and Biden with his mask and everything is the candidate of the lingering pandemic. I think there was a lot of emotional store that he put into it. Now it could be cured. You know, I think that that wound will be healed the instant he has a successful rally. Um, But the other thing that I thought was interesting, it just makes all the sense in the world is this expectations game and how the, the overflowing room is uh, just an important visual dynamic. So if you're for sure, if you're playing, I mean, this is like 101 for anything, like whether you're at a business or politics or anything else, like you don't have your guy speak to a half empty room. Yeah. It looks terrible on TV. When, uh, so I have the tiniest bit of insight on how hard it is to actually get people from point A to point B. Yeah. And I, I'm wearing a hat right now that is, uh, if you can't see me because you're not on our Zoom, but it's a Romney hat. And the O is the three stars of the state of Tennessee for East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, West Tennessee. And this hat, Sarah, dates back to March of 2006. Impressive. What happened in March of 2006? My wife and I organized a shocking second place finish for one Mitt Romney in the Southern Republican Leadership Conference, mm. where he came in second to, and this is a name blast from the past, Tennessee's own Bill Frist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he beat every other frontrunner for the 08, uh, for the 2008 presidential nomination. And I'll never forget it, A, how much hard work it was to get this coalition of evangelical and Mormon citizens to Memphis, Tennessee in March. And then to then it was my first experience in turning around and immediately addressing the media to try to talk up what just happened. And I was extremely unsophisticated in that, uh, Sarah. So you're gonna laugh. Your your professional, your professional mind is going to laugh at what I laugh at you all the time. So here's what happened. <laughs> Here's what happened, but only in the friendliest of ways. Um, of course. But here's what happened. So I positioned myself right by the media gaggle because I had we knew how many people we had. And we'd kind of, you know, all these conferences, you get rumors about how many people the other people had. And we had kept all of our people at an off-site hotel and brought them in during the waning moments of voting so that no one really knew. I mean, this was a textbook op. I mean, like, We'd never done it before, but it went off without a hitch. So no one expected it. And so they do this as descending order, like fifth, fourth, third. And they're going through the list and we were realizing, hey, we came in second. And so they announced second place, Mitt Romney. The crowd just gasps. And I, <laughs> and I turn to the assembled national media 
and I point at this very hat and I yell at the top of the, my lungs, this is the story right here. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, that's a great idea. Tell them what they need to hear, you know? <laughs> Don't hide the ball. And sure enough, everybody swarmed me immediately. And the next thing you know, Nancy, who was wearing a very similar hat, was positioned in the eye line of Chris Matthews. Yes. And she was the only Romney supporter. Like we had pre-positioned all these people because we knew it was going to be a complete surprise. And she was the only Romney supporter and eye line of the producers. And they grabbed her from the crowd and, you know, we're about to put her in the chair with Chris Matthews, but uh, unfortunately they ran out of time. But <laughs> well, the other psychological aspect of this, there's the candidate for sure. Um, I think we're seeing the results of that. I, I actually think I take your point that that one actually may be larger than in previous cycles where, you know, the candidates have been pretty focused on, you know, eye on the prize type thing. They'd be mad at their advanced staff for not filling the venue, but more from a, um, yeah, like this looked bad on TV yeah. type thing. Uh, but there's also the psychological impact potentially on supporters. Right. Whether you're watching on TV or you showed up to the venue, uh, you know, it's it's deflating balloon, if you will. And that's a question that's still outstanding. I don't know how many people are truly affected. Certainly it wouldn't affect their vote. We're talking purely turnout. Are they less right. likely to turn out to vote because they're not sure that there's the throngs that there were last time? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it'll have a huge effect at all. Certainly not an effect that will last to November by any means. No. And, um, you know, I think most people correctly would write it off as, well, pandemic. So it really will come down to Trump himself and his ability to say, false start, five-yard penalty. Yeah. <laughs> the ball's back in play. Right. Right, exactly. And but what you know, we've seen this morning is him instead talking about how November's rigged. <laughs> yeah. Not exa exactly responding with, you know, calm, cool, collected, above the fray resolve here. But uh No, and still uh, then back to the huge problem for his advanced team who will um you know, they they dovetail and will largely turn to voter turnout efforts once early voting starts and push mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. Yeah. And so this is making it much, much harder on the same team that just got their asses kicked in the field. Yeah, that's a very good point because they are going to have to push mail-in ballots. And with a disproportionate... For the same reason people didn't show up this time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this it, it strikes me as self-defeating to condemn the mail-in balloting, uh, especially with an older voting base. Well, although, you know, to an extent, whether or not he has the older vote now is up for grabs. Uh, when it wasn't in 2016. Um, okay, well, let, let's let's move on from there to the events of Friday and Saturday. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're we're back to my second world, which is my DOJ world. Again, listeners, I worked there uh, for 2017 to 2018 as the head of public affairs and left in early 2019. So, Jeffrey Berman. Uh, was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Now, the blue slip process is very important here, David. And this is basically what has happened in the Senate is if you don't have the approval of your two home state senators, uh, Lindsey Graham or whoever's the head of the Judiciary Committee when it comes to U.S. attorneys in particular, district court judges as well so far, has said uh, you're just not going to get confirmed. 
U.S. attorneys has another um, wrinkle to it, which is they have only done U.S. attorneys by unanimous consent. So we haven't really run into this where there's blue slips returned, but then people still want to vote no, but that could happen. So the point is, there's like a no controversy U.S. attorney rule in the U.S. Senate right now. Right. Berman, when he was initially appointed by the president, uh, was not going to pass that. Schumer was not going to return the blue slip. He wasn't going to get through in unanimous consent. He was seen as a Trump crony uh, from the campaign. And so they did this alternative appointment instead under 28 U.S.C. 546. So basically, you appoint an acting attorney general, and after 120 days, the district court... Acting U.S. uh, attorney. Sorry, sorry, acting U.S. attorney. (laughs) I'm used to some acting uh, attorneys general as well. Uh, Yeah, so you appoint him acting U.S. attorney, and then the district court in the district that he's in after 120 days can appoint him as United States attorney to fill the vacancy. Part D says, uh, the district court for such district may appoint a U.S. attorney to serve until the vacancy is filled. That will also become relevant. Okay. Now this takes us to Friday night. Bill Barr issues a press release late Friday night. I was sitting home with my little brisket and then boom, (laughs) my phone starts buzzing quite, quite late, I will say. And he says, I'm pleased to announce that President Trump intends to nominate Jay Clayton, currently the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, to serve as the next United States for the Southern District of New York. What? I was very confused. (laughs) What had happened to Berman? I thought to myself sitting with my brisket. <laughs> and then it goes on and on about Jay Clayton. And I'm like, yeah, but I must've just missed it. You know, I did have a baby. Maybe I've been behind on news. I didn't think so. And then you get to the bottom of this three paragraph press release. And it says, finally, I thank Jeffrey Berman, who is stepping down after two and a half years of service as United States attorney for the Southern district of New York with tenacity and savvy. Jeff has done an excellent job. Yada, yada, yada. I appreciate his service to the department of justice and our nation. And I wish him well in the future. Huh, I thought, knowing some of the background of what had been going on between Berman and Barr. Why would Berman have all of a sudden changed his mind and resigned when I know that six months ago he had no interest in leaving? Hmm, I pondered Hmm. and went back to feeding the brisket. (laughs) (laughs) But then along came another buzz of my phone. But a few moments later, Jeffrey Berman puts out a statement that, by the way, is like done in PowerPoint. It has his picture on it. Very professional. Yeah. (laughs) This was not a fly-by-night statement. No. (laughs) Uh, And this statement says, I learned in a press release from the Attorney General tonight that I was, quote, stepping down as United States Attorney. I have not resigned and have no intention of resigning my position, to which I was appointed by the judges of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. I will step down when a presidentially appointed nominee is confirmed to the Senate. Until then, I'll keep doing my job, basically, is what the rest says. <laughs> uh, so now text messages start flying between all the former DOJers with variations on WTF and emojis. Right. Lots of emojis. Yeah. That's sort of it. We're all left wondering what in the world is happening. So let's take a pause here of what then we all think about over the night Friday night. Again, I have to wake up several times to feed the brisket. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what Berman's referring to is that part D that I mentioned in his appointment where uh, 
he is United States attorney, no longer acting until the vacancy is filled. He was implying that therefore uh, he could only be removed once the vacancy is filled. That's what replaces him. Uh, There is, however, a 1979 opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which are considered sort of the law professors of the executive branch. And they sit in the Department of Justice that actually speaks to this exact question. Uh, Can you remove a U.S. attorney appointed by a district court pursuant to USC 28 USC 546? uh, And they said, to our knowledge, the question is one of first impression back in 1979. So it is not a first impression now. Right. (laughs) And they answer this. It's actually three pages. We'll put it up on the website as well. Uh, And it's pretty readable. And it basically says, uh, absolutely, the president has to have the ability to remove a U.S. attorney even when he's been appointed by the court or else you raise massive separation of powers issues, not to mention just practical issues. If a judge can remove a prosecutor when he doesn't approve of something he's done. Right. Big problems. But then the second question is, can the attorney general remove a court-appointed U.S. attorney? And they find the answer to that, uh, quote, in the negative. (laughs) (laughs) The bar Uh, can't fire him, but Trump can. That's the OLC, the bottom line. And the very end says, like, now look, probably the president could give an oral decision to the attorney general, and the attorney general could deliver that oral decision, but we do not recommend this course of action, (laughs) is what it says. But fine, they leave open that possibility. So, okay, so all that needs to happen is for Trump to fire Berman. And this is wrapped up in a nice little bow and Berman has to go. So we drift off to bed, me, the brisket, (laughs) and the rest of America. So we wake up Saturday morning, waiting to see what will happen. (gasps) Bill Barr has issued a, you know, a long letter. Oh, but first, Berman goes to the work, goes to work. Oh, yes, he does. Berman goes to work. Surrounded by a gaggle of press and basically says, I've said all I'm going to say about this. I am the U.S. attorney. And then. Uh, and then we have this letter from Barr. Dear Mr. Berman, I was surprised and quite disappointed by the press statement you released last night. As we discussed, I wanted the opportunity to choose a distinguished New York lawyer, Jay Clayton, to nominate as U.S. attorney and was hoping for your cooperation to facilitate the smooth transition. Uh, He goes on to say, I offered you some other positions, including chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the position currently held by Jay Clayton, the head of the Civil Division. Unfortunately, with your statement of last night, you have chosen public spectacle over public service. Because you have declared you have no intention of resigning, I've asked the president to remove you as of today, and he has done so. By operation of law, the deputy United States attorney, Audrey Strauss, will become the acting U.S. attorney, and I anticipate that she will serve in that capacity until a permanent successor is in place. It goes on about how disappointed he is. Yeah. We do not need to rehash. (laughs) Okay. So we're done, I thought, on Saturday morning. Done. Easy. Yes. All is well. 3.54 p.m., David. (laughs) The president is walking out to Marine One. I shouldn't be laughing at this because it's chaos, uh, but in an important office. But okay, keep going. I'm sorry. The president's walking out to Marine One to head to Tulsa. And the president, the first question that he gets asked, why did you fire Jeffrey Berman? Why did you fire him over the buzzing of the helicopter blades? And the president answers, well, that's all up to the attorney general. Attorney General Barr is working on that. That's his department, not my department. 
but we really have a very capable attorney general. So that's really up to him. Wait for it. I'm not involved. (laughs) Oh my. Oh my. Yeah. Luckily, this all ends a short while later when Berman, officially exhausted from... (laughs) I, I think back to like the nature shows I watched with my parents on PBS as a kid where like the... Uh, uh, you know, thrashing gazelle versus the lion and the gazelle is yeah. just not dying. And then finally <laughs> the gazelle like probably could fight some more and is just like, you know what? This is all going to end the same way. I might as well just die now. So Berman released a statement that's like, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm out. I'm resigning. It's over. I leave right now. And Audrey Strauss is great. Yeah. Thus endeth the longest massacre. <laughs> <laughs> The roughly 24-hour Friday night to Saturday night massacre. Yeah, most most massacres are just shot fired. That's right. You know, this was a torture death, uh, yep. basically. And so, okay, a couple of things that are important additional context here. So one is why why would we why would Twitter be collectively freaking out about and and off Twitter as well? Why would text messages be blowing up? Uh, my DMs going crazy about this uh, beyond the drama that we just went through, which is interesting and bizarre and incompetent on 19 different levels um, because he occupies an important position. Uh, he supervises a squadron of prosecutors who happen to be investigating um business partners and entities that do business with Donald Trump. I mean, this is the office that put Michael Cohen, his former lawyer in prison. Um, Although worth noting, Berman was recused from that. Right. But he's running, but this is his office. So it leads to all kinds of speculation that um, is this obstruction, all kinds of completely uh, really rank speculation. We just don't know the the backstory that much at all but what is interesting is and is different and this is where sort of berman won is that what was going to be unusual about the berman replacement is that the original intention was of the replacement was to bring in someone from outside the sdny correct the new jersey u.s attorney carpentino exactly Instead of his uh, his first assistant taking over, which is customary until the permanent U.S. attorney is appointed. And automatic if you don't name someone else. If you, exactly. So what ends up happening is Berman effectively blocked the importation of the outside attorney outside of SDNY. And now his assistant is taking over as is customary and will probably be there you know, in in da- at least through the end of Trump's first term. Now, Sarah, I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe you do. Was was um, his assistant recused from the Cohen matters? Uh, no, she was not. Very okay. much not. So, in other words, the person who was probably more instrumental than the recused Berman in uh, actually supervising and actually in, in engaging in the Trump investig the matters related to Trump's still there. Um, and, right. and now and, in charge and now in charge. <laughs> so that's why I say by the end of the day, at the end of the day, if the goal was to bring in somebody completely new 
who could change the course of the investigations materially. And that's one thing that was very interesting about the Berman statement is he went out of his way to say investigations would continue. Um, so if the goal was to bring in somebody who would materially alter those investigations, I would say that goal was almost certainly frustrated. If that But was here's what's so, okay, two points that I have to make. One, good luck shutting down investigations in SDNY, by the way. You can't do it secretly. Right. You can just go out and say, you will no longer do this and cut off the leaks from the office if you tried to do it. But to do it secretly was never going to happen regardless. Right. So to the extent that's like one of the like Twitter conspiracy theories, I reject it from a practical sense. Right. Uh, two, just a little press lesson, David, just yes. quick, you know, from, from you to me. Please. Um, if you put out a statement at 10 p.m. on a Friday night, it's called a Friday night news dump. Yes. Reporters know what you're trying to do. So does everyone on Twitter. And it will simply raise suspicions that you've done something shady. Yep. If they had put out that initial press release at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, a couple things would have happened. One, people would have been busy with other stuff, probably not thought it was shady, probably thought they, like me, had missed Berman resigning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and would have moved on with their day. Or two, if it does go south, by 6 p.m. on Wednesday, something else will have happened to overtake the news cycle. Yes. By doing it Friday night at 10 p.m., you guaranteed people would think you did something shady, try to find out what you did shady, and that nothing could overtake the news cycle for the weekend until the Tulsa rally happened 24 hours later. So you owned a crap news cycle for 24 hours totally unnecessarily. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... There was so much to this. I mean, the timing raised all the all kinds of questions. The response, the immediate response from Berman, which references continuing investigations. I was surprised by that. Yeah, I mean that that was that immediate response was remarkable, and the reference to the investigations was remarkable. I mean, every, it was everything was ca the way it unfolded was almost perfectly textbook calculated to raise all kinds of antenna that something nefarious was going on behind the scenes. Um, well, as I hinted at before, Berman has known for many months that he was on the chopping block. So he has been prepared for this mentally, if not literally with that PowerPoint slide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, for a long, long time, many months, going back uh, well into um, late... Uh, 2019. Uh, so this wasn't news to him that they had been trying to remove him, but it sounds like it was news to him at 10 p.m. on Friday that they had at least attempted to do so. <laughs> yeah. Now that next question is, will we get a Berman book or a oh, Berman op-ed? <laughs> well, well, he's been invited to testify at House yes. Judiciary. No surprise yes. there. Nadler yes. had that letter also ready to go, it appears. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, oh, I don't know, David, I'm getting kind of over the books. I have to be honest. If you want to take a brief like cul-de-sac into Bolton, I don't want to talk about all the details except what he said this morning on ABC, which uh, when he was asked about why he didn't testify at the impeachment hearing, you know, because that's the big question. You could have said all of this to Congress when what you had to say was relevant to our constitutional system for removing a president who you think is unfit. Yeah. But instead, you waited and released this book in sort of a bizarre manner. Um, I want to get your take on Friday's hearing as well. Um, but 
uh, because the punchline was he could have asked the court to step in and speed up the uh, pre-clearance publication review process, and he didn't. Instead, he did it this way. So anyway, the question to him was, why didn't you want to testify at the impeachment hearing? And his answer was, I didn't want to help the Democrats, basically. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... So how did Friday go? I tried to get in. Uh, It was full. I couldn't get in. I texted you many, many frustrations. You tried to send me updates and I fell asleep. So (laughs) tell me how it went. Yeah. So, so by the way, this is just, um, an open letter to elite law firms in the United States of America. Can you please make sure that your senior attorneys have good internet connections and know how to use zoom or whatever? video conferencing software. I mean, the first 15 minutes where it's literally featured this kind of dialogue. I think you're on mute. (laughs) Maybe it'll work better if you turn off the audio and uh, turn on the audio and turn the video off. No, I'm sorry. This is not going to work. No, (laughs) you cannot have a hearing like this. No, not that icon. (laughs) I am not even kidding. And these are some of the leading... (laughs) leading litigators in the United States of America. And we're having that conversation. It, it was, you couldn't parody it. You could not parody it on Saturday Night Live. It was, so that was the first 15 minutes. Honestly wondered if the thing was going to uh, come off. And then it goes, basically, uh, it was really interesting because what the Trump administration was trying to do was to enjoin distribution of this book. And it was very clear right from the get-go that was not going to happen. I mean, the the judge basically said the horse is out of the barn here, guys. I mean, wait, um, didn't he say the horse isn't just out of the barn? The horse is out of the country, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I mean, and while it was happening, uh, Ben Wittes from Lawfare was live tweeting huge chunks of the book onto Twitter, just like, "Here you go, you know, enjoying this," and and so. <laughs> It was very clear. It was very clear that uh, that book was not going to be enjoined. The publication of that book was not going to be enjoined. But then what happened next was up comes Bolton's lawyers. And it was very clear that Judge Lamberth was not amused or impressed by Bolton's conduct. He asked the question, why didn't you file suit if the process was improper. If you believe the process was being abused to prevent non-classified information from coming out, there's a remedy. You can sue. Why didn't you sue? And it was very clear to me from the get-go. The first thing I thought, two things at once. One, we're going to get the book, which is the constitutionally <laughs> correct response. And number two, John Bolton may not get your his money. So wait, what was their answer to why not file the declaratory action up front? It was... Um, it was not great. Um, it was a little scattered, but essentially it boiled down to we didn't think we had to. We just yeah, didn't. Okay. It, we didn't think we, didn't it was think we had to. We thought we could just publish a book. We thought we could just publish a book. We went, pursued the process in good faith. The process was not being pursued in good faith by the administration. We, there's not classified information in this book. Um, we have the April 27th letter from or email from the head of the uh, original classifying review authority. Yes. And there are some bad facts for the Trump administration, including some of the stuff was classified later after um, after the first phase of the uh, classification review was completed. Um, 
we don't know how legitimate are the Trump administration's classification determinations. We, we don't know that. Lamberth is on the record, and as we mentioned in a previous podcast, as being unimpressed with how the government overclassifies information. Um, no, but he did say he had reviewed ex parte uh, the government's evidence for things being classified and said that he believes it is classified and appropriately so. Right, right. And and so, but this is all, you know, quite summary. This is very early in the process. This is what, yes. about four or five days into litigation. So, um, <laughs> and so that was essentially, you know, he, essentially he was setting the stage for punitive actions against Bolton post-publication. And in so doing, I think he might have, regardless of the law, captured the zeitgeist, which was, yeah, we want to read what Bolton has to say, but it just feels super gross that he is making a giant pile of money when he could have said this earlier in the, in this, you know, in the context of a constitutional process, holding the president accountable. And in the book, uh, goes on to argue that what well, you know the Democrats made a mistake because they could have impeached him for more. I mean, that, <laughs> well, okay, why not come forward as a patriot and say that? And I know there have been defenses of him, and some of the defenses say it wouldn't have mattered anyway with the Republican senators, etc. Probably true, um, but it's sort of like the declaratory action. But you never gave it a chance. Never gave it a chance. Never gave it a chance. So. You know, Judge, I felt like Judge Lamberth was kind of all of us uh, at, at a, a few moments in the... Uh, pox on both your houses. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Trump administration. You are not enjoying a book that people are reading right now and tweeting the contents to. Come, please. <laughs> and come on, uh, Mr. Bolton. You signed these contracts. Um, you had a way, if you thought the administration was doing this in bad faith, you had a way through. You didn't choose it. And there are consequences for that. So it feels kind like kind of sounds like a divorce. <laughs> it does. It does. Like child custody over the book over a nasty divorce. Well, and this was a very messy divorce between the Trump administration and John Bolton. So, um, yeah. So that's where we are on on Bolton. So I'm going. Are you going to read the book, Sarah? Honestly, no. I'm going to read it. I'm going to do. Thank gonna, you. Thank you for your service to our podcast. <laughs> yes, I will read it and I will report back dutifully to our I'll listeners. ask you questions about it. How about that? Okay. I'm reading a great book on uh, on Churchill. I can't I can't really go from Churchill to Bolton. I'm sorry. <laughs> Understood. Understood. So that's the, the Bolton uh, detour. Let's pause here to talk about today's sponsor, Gabby Insurance. We are all looking for ways to save money, especially now. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance, on homeowner's insurance? Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there and they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take two minutes right now 
to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash advisory. That's Gabby.com slash advisory. Gabby.com slash advisory. Thank you, Gabby Insurance, for sponsoring advisory opinions. Shall we talk about the Supreme Court a bit? Let's do it because um, uh, I feel like Bostock, Bostock more than DACA was really the opinion that launched a thousand ships of internet takes. Yes, yes, it real it was I, much more so because I think when you're when you're talking about DACA, um, outside of like, well, let's put it this way. The conservative legal movement has not centered nearly as much around the Administrative Procedure Act as it has around uh, the First Amendment and religious liberty. And the Dreamers issue, while a hot button and volatile, is also not quite as wrapped up in the culture war as the way the uh, conflicts between religious liberty and LGBT uh, rights is wrapped up in the culture war. And so there's much more gnashing of teeth right now about Bostock uh, than there is. I think is. that's true. I also think that Roberts wrote the DACA opinion in such a narrow cabined fashion. It's right. hard to apply that opinion to anything else that could come down the pike except for the next DACA case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's not true for Bostock. Everyone's sitting there going like, well, wait, what about this? What about this? How's it going to apply to this? Like we talked about the affirmative action um, take by Cass Sunstein. So that being said, there's the larger, there's a lot of conversations, but David, I want you to talk about this Roth Douthat um, op-ed from today or yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is a really interesting op-ed. And I think uh, Ross as usual uh, is he's always worth reading. And on this issue, he is uh, he makes a really interesting point uh, and that I'm going to agree with in large part, and I'm going to disagree with in a material part. Uh, and and, and what again, we've thrown this up on the website, so check it out. Yes. You can read it for yourself and and take on David in all of his takes. <laughs> um, so he, his his fundamental uh, theory is that we essentially have 2.25 branches of government right now. We don't have three branches. We have a presidency, and this is the quote from him, that acts unilaterally whenever possible, a high court that checks the White House and settles culture wars, and a Congress that occasionally bestirs itself to pass a budget. And I, I like that he said occasionally because we did go through many years That's right. <laughs> without even passing a budget. Um, and so... And, and so one of the, and this is something uh, he's amplifying points he made on Twitter that essentially power will flow to the entities that are willing to exercise power. And he, he says, what we have here is a juristocracy, um, an emerging juristocracy where the judges are willing to exercise power and they're doing so. Um, and that this is different from years past. Uh, and he says, um, while Grant and Sherman prepared their offensives in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln didn't demand that the Supreme Court declare slavery unconstitutional. Instead, he pushed the Senate to amend the Constitution to abolish it. Battles over Catholicism and public education, women's suffrage, and temperance all had similar legislative goals. The long struggle for civil rights was aided by Brown v. Board of Education and Loving v. Virginia. But the crucial action was in Congress, where the major civil rights laws ultimately passed. Uh, the following decade, feminists naturally sought their own constitutional amendment, the ERA, and its defeat was seen as a milestone in conservatism's rise. And that's all completely, completely fair, um, that major social movements of the past have emphasized Congress over um, 
over the judiciary. And that's different. The judiciary now exercises a large amount of power. And that's a problem. And I agree, that's a problem. Now, where does the fault lie? Look, yes, absolutely, there are some judges who are quite ambitious, but we have, and in in their in the way in which they wield power, we have seen that for quite some time. It's one of the reasons why um, judicial restraint was a rallying cry for much of the right for many, many years. It's less of a rallying cry now for reasons we can get into. Um, but there is an important factor here. So on the one hand, we don't seek... And I think Ross would absolutely recognize this. We don't seek Congress to intervene because we know Congress will not. It won't. Let's take free speech on campus. Although I think there's probably wide idea in theory of a public approval for a free speech uh, legislation to protect the marketplace of ideas on campus. Uh, I even drafted model free speech legislation for Congress all the way back in 2004, Sarah. Um for some I'm, reason, I misheard that a little and thought you were saying from model Congress, like in high school or something. <laughs> model. You should see my, yeah. my resolutions to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and model UN. Uh, Perfect. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. You actually did draft. Okay. Yes. I knew it was going Congress. nowhere. I knew it was yeah. going nowhere. And so there's a lot of how much energy and money are you willing to pour into an act of futility? Whereas if you file a lawsuit in a court you know what? The court has to rule on the lawsuit. It cannot just simply say, yeah, we'd really rather Congress do this. No, you're filing a, a set of legal claims based on legal doctrines. And so I have been in the meetings where, the, I, where we discuss the goal is to blanket the United States of America with free speech lawsuits. And we knew they were going to have to be resolved. And we knew that not all the resolutions would be uniform. If they were, great. I mean, that would mean, you know, hopefully that we'd won. But to the extent that there were conflicts, you can't have one set of First Amendment doctrine in one part of America and another set of First Amendment doctrines in another part of America. The Supreme Court has to settle it. So unlike Congress, which doesn't have to act and chooses not to, you know who has to act when you file a lawsuit? The judiciary, it has to act. If, if we could have passed free speech legislation through Congress in 2004 to wipe away speech codes at all public universities in the United States, that would have been a lot less uh, difficult than the amount of time I spent litigating, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, to tell you. Yeah. Um, but we knew it was impossible. We knew it was impossible, and we knew the court had to act. And so this goes back to my rant. I'm not so much angry at the court for resolving lawsuits when it has to resolve lawsuits. I'm going back to Congress and I'm saying, look, guys, you're breaking us. You're breaking this system by your unwillingness to act. And, and this is one I'm going to recommend you guys listen to uh, uh, Ezra Klein. I'm going to find and put in the show notes one of his older podcasts in his book, Why We're Polarized. And he talks about how Congress is not able to exercise power now. And the changing way in which Congress, the changing composition of Congress, um, it's th where it's so uniformly ideological in between the Republican and Democratic side, uh, in part because of the big sort, in part because of gerrymandering. But it used to be you could pass major legislation on a bipartisan basis 
because there were different ideological coalitions within the parties. And so you could cobble together a coalition of Midwestern Democrats and Northeastern Republicans to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 over the objection of the Southern Democrats. You could do that. You could pass legislation with this big mix. But now it's lockstep R and lockstep D, and it becomes extraordinarily difficult for anything to happen. And, and then, by the way, you then have people running to Fox and MSNBC saying, eh, Congress is broken, say, Congressman. <laughs> I think you also have some of a, a cycle going as the executive gained more power, including the power, not gained this power, but including how powerful it became then to appoint judges yeah. as Congress uh, receded like Homer Simpson into the bushes. Um, being president became far more important. And so you have all these members of Congress who don't want to take controversial or unpopular positions that could cost them the presidency and why you yep. see 20 people running for president uh, be- and then running for president on the platform of appointing judges. Yep. <laughs> I well, mean, think about Marco Rubio's presidential run. The Gang of Eight bill killed it. Yeah. How dare he even propose legislation to try to fix a problem Uh, Whether you agree or disagree with it, the other candidates who hadn't tried to fix the problem were far more successful than the ones who had. That is a voter problem. That's not on Congress. That's on us. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there is a huge voter problem here. I mean, and so then what is the what is the incentive is that you then begin to run on platforms of sort of base fan service legislation that, you know, has no chance of passing, but does have the effect of terrifying the other side. And so yep. you have this, these platforms that have these arrays of proposed legislation that aren't going to get through. They're not going to get through. <laughs> but then, you know, on the other side, you say, well, if, if I don't vote for Trump, then look at this legislation. And you're thinking, it's all LARPing. <laughs> it's all partisan LARPing. Not, you know. I, I'm fascinated to watch Josh Hawley um, let's call it, I'm going to call it 2019 Josh Hawley to 2023 Josh Hawley when he is really in the throes of a presidential campaign um, as sort of the new, the emerging model of the senator of what you're describing and how effective it is and whether voters respond to it. Um, again, assuming that Trump were to lose this election, if not, just fast forward, like take my numbers and add four years. Yes. Um, but but I think that Hawley is charting sort of graduating from the last 20 years of congressional disengagement. And we're seeing like a new form of it, an advanced form. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. He's become the, he's become very good at drafting legislation that can't pass and is likely unconstitutional. And then um, using that as a tremendous platform to speak to the populist base on Tucker. Um, and and then by con- conversely terrifying a, mi- num- a number of Democrats who say, well, look at what's coming down the pike. And none of this stuff is passing. Right. But this is because Senator Josh Hawley doesn't think he can get anything passed right now anyway, right. because nobody's going to join that coalition. The Democrats aren't going to help him pass anything. So he needs to become president to get anything done. And so here's how he can become president. Like, again, I'm actually not criticizing Josh Hawley. I think he may have found a pretty good method for doing this in the system and in the framework that exists. Uh, because even if he wrote really, really reasonable legislation, David, it, it still wouldn't pass. Yeah. So what's he supposed to do? Well, he needs to become president to, yeah. to do those things. So yeah, 
so I was reading Jack Balkin. He's a professor at Yale. He is a liberal professor, but uh, an originalist liberal is how he describes himself. Which, by the way, is a whole thing of we're all textualists now. We're all originalists now. <laughs> the left's um, uh, adoption of textualism originalism, which was originally heralded as a huge success of the Scalia legacy, is now an interesting debate of like, ooh, is that bad? Like <laughs> right. they're, they're taking the conservatives' words and using them against them? How dare they? Uh, so Jack Balkan writes this great piece of like, hey, look, as an outsider who's been watching the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement for a long time, here are my observations in the wake of Bostock. Uh, and again, we'll put it in the show notes. But here's the paragraph that I think is most uh, a good summary of his point. The move from judicial restraint to judicial engagement by the legal conservative movement once they gained power and appointed all these judges, of course they right. became more engaged, yep. <laughs> uh, had unexpected consequences for the conservative alliance. It benefited all parts of the alliance to some degree, but some parts more than others. In particular, the move to judicial engagement tended to benefit libertarians, small government conservatives, and business conservatives the most because they're the ones who wanted to push back against regulation and undermine bureaucratic capacities which he argues previously was um, something that judicial conservatism was very good at uh, uh, targeting. Yeah. That philosophy was very good at dismantling. By contrast, he says, it cross-cut the interest of the national security conservatives, some of which wanted to limit the executive, some wanted to defer to the executive. But most importantly, of course, uh, it undermined the social and religious conservatives the most and put them at odds with the libertarians and the pro-business conservatives who didn't really care about those issues and weren't going to fight on that ground with them. Uh, and what's fascinating, and he points this out as well, but I would take it much, much further, as the Reagan stool was disintegrating, I think everyone thought the legal conservative group was its own leg and doing just fine. Scalia yeah. had left us with uh, this legacy and like, wow, it's thriving. Look at the Federalist Society. Look at all these judges. And nobody noticed the rot in the stool. And I think this week, people are like, wait, is it possible that legal conservatism will fall apart too and the Scalia legacy won't exist? So shortly after his passing, that would have been unthinkable in late 2016. Unthinkable. Yeah. I what I, th I What I thought was interesting... And I, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different way. I think one of the foundational breaks in communication was over what is originalism. And I think that what, what seeped into the body politic was original intent. That when you talked originalism, and I, I will admit years ago to being quite sloppy in my use of that language myself. Like John Adams would be shocked to discover that his constitution had been interpreted in X, Y, Z way. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an easy thing to say. It's sort of an easy, it's an easy critique to make. Um, but it, what, what I think a lot of religious conservatives thought, I'm going to, I'm going to take this in a direction that you might not be anticipating. <laughs> I think a lot of religious conservatives thought that the Constitution should be interpreted the way Scripture is interpreted, and that what is the 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 when you're talking about reading Scripture, you're trying to understand the mind of God, 
Okay. Um, intent is everything. It is everything. Okay. And so, um, yes, the words on the page are absolutely vital. They're vital because they're the window into intent. Okay. And so if you're a religious conservative and you're looking at the constitution, which a lot of people sort of on a documentary basis are like number two behind the Bible, (laughs) when you're talking about amazing, you know, uh, marvelous documents uh, in human history, the constitution is up there in, in a lot of people's minds. And so their view of what original originalism was, was kind of like WWJMD. What would James Madison do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so if you take that approach, then a lot of the emerging um, moral structures of modern, modernity, a lot of the culture war arguments, you're thinking James Madison is not, would not be down with this, okay? He would not be down with this. And that's the, I, but that isn't what originalism is. It's it's original public meaning, not original intent. In other words, what are the what is the meaning of the words, and what, as a matter of fact, that's what makes originalism adaptable to a changing nation. Um, but it is not what people envisioned. Uh, it is, and and I think that's where people say, well, there there is a difference between the the conservative legal movement has failed because it isn't doing what James Madison would want it to do is kind of an underlying argument. Because I think that the real thought is this nation has changed in ways that would shock the founders substantively. And therefore those changes that would shock the founders substantively must fail when much of what the founders was, were, do, was doing, were doing was not putting in place a series of substantive, a constitution that would result in particular substantive outcomes. They were putting in place a structure through which conflict was to be mediated. And, and this is what, you know, people who critique me, they call that process liberalism. Um, <laughs> called, you know, because it's supposed to be a process and an outcome. And I think that that's part of the disconnect. Sarah, I, I, you know, I've been around uh, a lot of religious conservatives my whole adult life. I'm a religious conservative, and I think there's a, that's where some of the in, the disconnect exists. Does that make sense? It does, and I think this will not be the last time. We're not leaving this conversation. Uh, something you wrote in your newsletter was sort of, let's see where the rest of the term goes on some of these religious liberty cases yeah. and what we have left. Uh, so let's put a pin in it there and come back to this in our Supreme Court roundup. And one, one, one other plug, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, please read my Sunday French press. If you're not a, uh, if you're not a dispatch member, it's free. Uh, my, all my Sunday newsletters are freely available. Um, one thing that I realized when I was watching a lot of the response to the Bostock decision is a ton of people with public platforms were making uh, arguments about religious liberty. When I realized with a sudden shock, they don't know the law, and so. I tried to just very basically say, okay, okay, guys, here's what the law of religious liberty is post-Bostock. Um, if your pastor's nervous, if your, um, you know, if your school principal is nervous, if you're nervous, please read this. Please read this because you will see that there is an, array, an immense array 
I called it a citadel of religious liberty and the law. And that citadel is still there. It's still there. So um, take a look at it. And I also noted, went out of my way to put the dates. A lot of these cases were decided. And you'll see that most of them are post rise of the religious concern. I mean, the uh, post rise of the conservative legal movement. Um, and so anyone who says it's done nothing, just read that, please. Um, I think you'll see that it's not done everything it could do, but it's done a lot. Well, as our producer Caleb said, he was surprised that Sarah and David wanted to take on young adult novels that have been turned into film. <laughs> <laughs> but Caleb, you don't know me and David. Actually, you do. And it is a little surprising. Uh, but David, you are rewatching The Hunger Games based yes. on uh, the trilogy books, also called The Hunger Games. Yes. Uh, by the way, there's a new one, a prequel coming out. Or wait, it just did come out. It um, came out. I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it. Uh, but the original books were released uh, 2008 to 2010. The movies came out uh, shortly thereafter. Um, what do you think rewatching it? What are your thoughts? I have, I have lots of thoughts. You know, I, I do this. I like to watch something and then rewatch it five, 10 years later. See okay. what I think about it. Um, yeah. and I'm just, I remember ending that series and, and to put into some perspective, I read these things as they came out after I got back from Iraq. And so this is dystopian future. It's But what was always so resonant about the books is they were emotionally realistic to the wreckage that the wreckage that often follows heroism. Um, and one of the things that I thought was so fascinating is she painted a picture of a heroine and a hero who were incredibly. Uh, I mean, you know, they did all the things that, you know, you expect fictional heroes to do, but suffered the consequences that you do not expect the fictional heroes to suffer um, time and time again. And the movies portray this well. I mean, they're just shattered by their experiences, just shattered by their experiences. And I, yeah, I, it, a feeling of isolation, a feeling of loneliness um, because they are made different. Yes. By their experience. And I, I remember finishing the books and thinking, did she talk to veterans um, when before she wrote this? Like, did she? And even to the very ending of them all, which is quite bittersweet. And, and you know, spoiler alert, you know, should we do spoiler alert for books that are a decade old? No, we can just spoil them. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the, the love triangle is resolved with Katniss with PETA. And it just felt like, because they were the only ones who could understand each other. Like, because at the end of the day, they were the only ones left who could really understand each other. Not because of some incredible torrid romance, but because they no, just... No, that's right. And in fact, there's not a particular feeling of true love or passion. It's uh, moving on. Yeah. I am able to move on with this person with my life. Yes. And that enough was sort yeah. of the, and that will be enough was like the ending, which is a far, far different uh, trilogy than, for instance, Twilight. Yes. <laughs> so my whole shtick on this is I when the Hunger Games came out, I thought that and they were so popular. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 
28 million copies sold, I think, in the U.S. alone. What does it say when we have these massive popular cultural moments? TV uh, counts for me to some extent, but books, because they're less common, I think speak to a bigger hunger, zeitgeisty-wise. Right. And so for me, this is a young adult novel, came out in 2008. Uh, We assume, let's call it a 10 to 15-year-old female audience is the highest audience, like the, the largest median audience or whatever. So what does it say about these young girls and women that this is the book they were attracted to? And 10 years later, how will it have affected them like for this to have been a, a, a formative trilogy that they read? Uh, and they're kind of different questions. But to me, what stuck out from a like feminism standpoint is not only can she not rely on the men in her life, like she doesn't rely on them. She's from the beginning, though, not relying on them. Right. She's the one hunting, catching things uh, for food, taking care of her family. Her dad's gone. Uh, this is like, <laughs> women, take care of yourself. Like, <laughs> there's no one coming to your rescue. And instead of making it like she's so unusual or there's something special about her, you're sort of told like, no, there's nothing special about her. Yeah, maybe she's, you know, she's smart, she's clever, she's tough, but she's sort of just put in this position to have to act in the moment. Uh, And I really liked the message that the love story was not just secondary, maybe tertiary to the entire story. The love story doesn't end up with a Prince Charming moment at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's the Prince Charming who rescues him over and over again. And then she doesn't pick the hunky one. She, as you said, picks the one who shared her emotional experience. Right. Uh, So I'm very curious to see what that generation of women turns out to value in feminism, in their careers, in terms of their family life. Uh, I'm not sure... (laughs) I don't know how I feel about telling them that um, you have to compromise when it comes to marriage. Marriage is a series of compromises once mm-hmm. you're married. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but compromising on the person you're marrying maybe is not a message I would have included in the book. So I would, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with that a little bit because, Go for it. yeah. So one of the things that like I, I I'm, I hate this, the twilight trope of, you know, confused, idealistic young girl meets brooding (laughs) bad boy with the mysterious past and mysterious life story. Yeah. Twilight is the worst. I mean, come on. Um, I mean, but you know, lots of people loved it, whatever. Uh, no, but it's terrible. It's terrible on, on many levels. Storytelling is just one of them. Yeah. So the interesting thing I thought about, so just taking it from a, a perspective of the two male characters in uh, Twilight, in not Twilight, sorry, in uh, Hunger Games, you had Gale, the brooding guy, impulsive, you know, the one who it seems like that that's, if you're going with standard YA fiction, I felt like, oh, well, of course, Katniss is going to end up with Gale. This is the type. Right, he's sort of her equal. Right. From exactly. the start. Exactly. Yeah. He hunts with her. Um, he, you know, he is as proficient in combat as she is. And then you have this guy, PETA, who he just, he doesn't lack for any courage at all. 
of course. I mean, he, no. he demonstrates ridiculous amounts of courage time and time and time again. And selflessness. And selflessness. So you can't say he lacks courage. You can't say he's selfish. He just, he just loves Katniss. Like, and he has <laughs> for a long time. And that's always the guy that's like the roadkill, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. The inter- and the interesting the thing- He's yeah. just pining. The interesting th- thing though about it is one of, I think the, one of the central insights of the, of the book series is that if you're ca- talking about like building a, if you're talking, what I, it showed the flaws of the gales of the world and the virtues of the pitas of the world in a way that few works of fiction have because they're biased towards the gale perspective. And Peter was more than just a piner because that makes him sound kind of creepy uh, when he, he when he was. <laughs> no, I actually I didn't mean it in a creepy way, but I meant it in a beta way. Yeah, I mean, it, it does make Peta more of a beta than Gale. Gale's the alpha, and Peta's a little bit of a beta. Yeah, and and see, that's the thing that I thought was interesting. But about betas the book. can be courageous, and betas can be selfless. Like it, it, it. I, I think made it less of a caricature of a beta. Yeah, and that's what I appreciated. You don't have to be a dominant personality is, you know, and he was not a dominant personality. Katniss had a, the dominant personality. He didn't have to have the dominant personality, but he did have to, at the end of the day, exhibit virtue in ways that ultimately exceeded Gale's, even though Gale had the dominant personality. I think at the end of the day, the person who confronted more, who overcame more, who forgave more was him. And, you know, I, so one of the things that I thought that was really interesting about the ending is that, you know, if you're wanting to say, okay, here is marriage is going to be this thing where you can have every single aspect of awesomeness wrapped into one, uh, wrapped into one package, that would be typical sort of like fictional resolution that what Gale happens with Gale is Gale is still Gale, but he comes just enough PETA. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. To where it's all, all the things, right? It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. But instead, what ends up happening is you have two flawed human beings, two imperfect human beings. And I think Katniss, with absolute conviction by the end, understands that for her, that there is only one person. And it, it's not a doubt thing. And I think it's, it's part of the way in which, you know, Gail's recklessness at the end of the third book and the fourth movie demonstrates. And it's not a, so anyway, that, that was to me, it just showed a different type of male character that was every bit as courageous and virtuous if you, as you could want, but with a completely different kind of personal temperament. And I just, I don't know. I liked that. I thought that was really very well done. So around the same time, of course, 50 shades of gray also oh becomes incredibly popular. And yes, David, I did read them. (laughs) (laughs) And no, Sarah, I did not read them. (laughs) Well, but let me tell you, because, uh, okay, so we have a totally different generation that that is uh, attracting. So like sort of the, let's like skip a generation and then that generation above the Hunger Games uh, young women. Uh, And they are obsessed with Fifty Shades of Grey. And that to me, it, and the reason I bring it up is because I think it's um, uh, far more, again, about masculinity and how we're defining masculinity and what 
um, you know, <laughs> to Peacock, right? Like, uh, men have to have all these like colors and types of masculinity, whatever. And we, as women get to be the choosers, mm-hmm. we choose who to procreate with. And that's how natural selection happens with, you know, peacocks and humans as well. So the hunger games, as you said, shows this complicated version of masculinity where she picks the PETA, the, uh, courageous, the not peacock at all. That's right. The non-peacock courageous, less dominant personality in 50 shades of gray. It's totally the opposite. He is, I mean, right. If you've even heard of 50 shades of gray, (laughs) he is dominant (laughs) by definition. Uh, and, and she is submissive. Uh, and I think it goes to like the cultural war, religious liberty, even to some extent question as people think about where gender is going in our discussions around all of this, look to popular culture. Um, women are still interested in struggling with this question and the 50 shades of gray women are saying, nope, I want the dominant male personality. I want a peacock. And the Hunger Games generation potentially is saying, I actually think that I am the better provider, the more, um, <laughs> the, the better Katniss. I'm going to hunt better. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat the government. By the way, super libertarian message in The Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> and weirdly pro-life message in uh, Twilight, but that's sort of beside the point. There's really no message in Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, as I wrote to you, it showed that that generation of women does not particularly value the English language, but does value masculinity. <laughs> So here's another, let me throw another thing at you. All right. So I think one of the reasons why people may pursue, and you tell me if you tell me if you think I'm completely wrong about this. I think one of the reasons why people pursue a dominant personality, in addition to the charisma, there's sort of, you know, an innate charisma of people who can carry off a dominant personality well, is that all kinds of other virtues are presumed along with it. Um, Hmm. Strength, toughness. Um, a degree of, you know, physical courage when, and especially in a peaceful, prosperous society where you don't have an opportunity to demonstrate those virtues. So, you know, as opposed to when I, when I deployed to Iraq, there was every kind of personality type of guy that I was with, you know, quiet and reserved, bombastic and loud. And I will tell you, there was zero correlation between personal personality type and physical courage or zero correlation between personality type and a sense of honor and conviction. And, and what you, you put all of that group of people through a crucible, okay? And what emerged was quiet guys who demonstrated phenomenal courage. We saw some bombastic people who demonstrated some uh, in one instance, one of the most unbelievable acts of, uh, of cowardice I've ever seen. Um, and you couldn't, so, you know, but you, everyone emerged from that crucible having been tested in these very important ways and, you know, and having passed. And so I think, you know, one of the things about the Peter Gale situation is in fact, they were both faced ultimate, ultimate tests. One of them in Katniss's eyes, fully passed. And one of them, in her eyes, didn't pass. And that was, and, and that was what was interesting to me about it. Because she departed from the correlation between the personality and the temperament. And you see some of this, and this goes back to arguments about tr- masculinity in the age of Trump. 
people treat, treat their tweets as evidence of strength, as evidence that they fight, as evidence that they're combative, and they treat civility or decency as evidence of weakness, as evidence that you're not willing to fight. When in fact, often, when you look at the actual incentives aligned for different kinds of behaviors now, it's the people who are seeking decency and civility who are actually having to demonstrate greater conviction in the face of cultural headwind, headwinds than those who are going along with the tidal wave of outrage. And so we're getting the, we're getting the strength and courage thing exactly reversed. Well, uh, you know, for Scott's part, he fixed the toilet this weekend. And uh, <laughs> that was a, a show of courage to me and bravery in the face of overwhelming odds uh, and, and very important. But here's what I would say to uh, the young women who are listening to this podcast, I think, um, far be it for me to actually give real relationship advice because every situation is different. You're different. We all bring our own baggage to these things. But there is some wisdom that I think I have gained as I get older that I hope the Hunger Games sort of taught some of these women, which is one, um, <laughs> women are the selectors. Like, take that role seriously. Like, you're not trying to win him. He needs to be trying to win you. <laughs> Whether it's peacocking, whatever version of peacocking it is, is fine. But uh, in the human population and in not all, but most uh, animals, we're the selectors and you, uh, you know, preen about doing your thing. Bower birds are my favorite birds for this reason. I think the male bower birds are a delight. If you haven't looked up a video of male bower birds and their bowers, uh, please do so. They are the best of us. But um, what I don't think any of these books speaks to is that when picking a partner, oftentimes we talk about the virtues of that partner. And I think that's important, obviously. But what I have never seen someone talk about and what has just proven so true for me personally, and I'd be curious what your reaction is, maybe more important than the virtues that your partner brings are the virtues that they bring out in you. We all have different versions of ourselves. I'm different with my college friends than I am with my legal friends, with my DOJ friends, than with Scott's friends, et cetera. And some of the versions of me I like more than others or are more comfortable in than others. They're all me though. Your partner, the person you're going to spend your life with and go through all of these trials and tribulations with should be the person that brings out the version of you that you like the most, feel most comfortable in, enjoy being the most. And it's almost secondary <laughs> whether you like all of the parts of them. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I mean, look, if you're marrying somebody and going into a relationship with the view that they're almost great, almost almost perfect and I can make them perfect. Oof. That is, that is the recipe for a real disaster. Um, yeah. just a, a nonstop conflict. Cause guess what? Nobody's ever going to be perfect. And even if you encountered someone who was cl super close to perfect, you're not perfect. And so you're not, you don't even have the ability always to accurately perceive situations. So <laughs> And you will get less perfect with time, at least oh. if you're anything like me. Like whatever <laughs> perfection I was able to attain in my, you know, grooming and appearance and loveliness at, you know, 25, like what, when you're married, you know, and had a baby a week ago, <laughs> a lot of the perfect falls away from you. <laughs> well, there, that's the paradox of maturity, I think. And the paradox of maturity is that you actually do mature and grow better as a human being. But part of growing better as a human being is you have greater self-awareness 
which continues to reveal flaws that you didn't realize and understood that you have. Yes. So maturity is a great blessing and it also can be incredibly uncomfortable. But I, I think that's, ex- I think that's very right. And, and one of the interesting things I think is how do other, one of the warnings of a bad relationship, I think, is when friends say, I don't like who you are mm-hmm. around them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a, a really pretty dramatic friend intervention at one point early in life uh, before I met Nancy that was like along the lines of, I don't like what you're becoming with this person. That was, you know, it's kind of like a scales fall from the eyes moment. Um, yeah, that's, that's like the worst thing in the last thing is, of course, if your exclusive focus uh, in a relationship is on the other person's virtue and not your own, <laughs> another recipe for absolute disaster. Uh, and I'm almost hitting year 25 of marriage, Sarah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you should be writing a book on all of this. But I <laughs> no. think there is some combination of there is something good and wholesome about the doe-eyedness of Twilight. I'm not going to totally poo-poo the idea of just falling head over heels. Like, that's good. You right. know, there's few moments like that. But there's also the Hunger Games moments of being self-reliant, knowing who you are, and finding a person who fits into that, uh, even though I think Katniss made the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to have to have a whole podcast on that. But <laughs> And I- the Fifty Shades of Grey, like, whatever you want from masculinity, like you are the selector as a woman and, and take that process seriously. And I will also say never take dating advice from me because I dated Nancy for six weeks before we got engaged <laughs> and we were engaged for three months. Yes, and that's way more twilight than hunger games, my friend. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and here we are almost 25 years later and that's God's providence right there. Because if my, Kids came to me now and said, oh, I'm getting engaged to somebody I've known for six weeks. And oh, by the way, I was working at a big firm, so I really didn't see a lot of her (laughs) during those six weeks. It's a lot like we were spending every waking moment together. So yeah, don't do that. But thank God uh, it's been a blessing. Three different versions of feminism from late 20-aughts literature. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, this is one heck of a podcast, uh, and we thought we weren't going to have as much to talk about today. Um, But thanks for hanging in with us, uh, and we will be back on Thursday. And is the court going to issue opinions Thursday? Do we know? I believe so. Okay. So maybe we'll have something other than equitable disgorgement to talk about on Thursday. It sounds like we're talking about anacondas or something. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It does. But thank you for listening. This has been David French and Sarah Isker and the Advisory Opinions Podcast. And again, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again. Yeah.